0: Good morning. Good morning. It is a delight to see you this morning. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, this morning, I stood up and started talking so fast, I just uh, left out several things I should have said. I should have began by saying thank you uh, to the elders. Uh, and uh, it was mentioned by Randy how thorough they were in their investigation of me. And he was not he was not kidding. Uh, I didn't know if it was going to cost us children or blood to come over here, but I'm thankful that we stopped short of that. Uh, Also, want to thank uh, Brother Furman, and um, not simply for the job that he has done, but that he uh, was very instrumental in our coming. He reached out to me, and he uh, was very encouraging. And uh, I just appreciate that so much and appreciate him. He and Gene have been very kind to us very receiving and, and very welcoming, and I sure appreciate that. It, it sure meant a lot, and I appreciate him very much. <clears throat> I want to thank those who came and helped move boxes. It didn't take long. A call was sent out, and there were people at our house very early. Uh, one particular sister lifted more boxes than some men. Oh. Uh, we appreciate that, and her children, they came over, and very thankful for that. And uh, lastly, I want to thank my family. Uh, When they heard that this was a possibility, they said, we're all going. And uh, that was quite a relief to me and to my wife, and we're very thankful for them. We had six cars in a caravan (laughs) from Atlanta to Texas, and we didn't get lost once. Well, a few separations, but nothing major, nothing major. Uh, the grandsons rode with me, which was very exciting. We had a great time. They did great, and it was like pit stops. We uh, made it to a couple of buckies, and uh, their parents would park the cars, and then they would come over to the truck where the kids were, and they would all huddle and they would encourage each other. And like the next leg, we're gonna make it, and they did a great, great job. We appreciate that very much. All that said, I don't think I left—oh, thank you, Sister Owens. Uh, Well, just period. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Two things we want to talk about this morning, two things, growth and God. That's what we're going to talk about. The title of our sermon ultimately is, It's All About God. And you'll probably hear me say this once this morning, but maybe 10,000 times after this, and that is, Scripture is about God. The individual books of the Bible are about God. The collective books of the Bible are about God. And it's my goal as a gospel preacher to help people learn God, think like God, live like God, and ultimately when their life is over, go home to be with God. In order to accomplish this, I must grow. And I'm really looking forward to that. You don't have many firsts at my young age. That's what Brother Homer said this morning, this young man. And so I'm taking that and I'm running with it. But you don't, you don't have many firsts, but, but you also can, if you're not careful, you can stop growing. And I'm looking forward to being stretched and to trying to grow. And I want to encourage you to do that as well. Let's do that together. Grow in our praise and appreciation and devotion to the God of heaven. Three things then are necessary for us to grow. Now, there may be more, but at least these three are involved. Number one, we must challenge ourselves, growth comes from challenge. I'm told, and I don't know this by way of of my own knowledge or experience, but I'm told that baby chickens, in order to hatch and live outside, must really fight to break through the egg. They really have to strain to do that in order to be able to live outside of that egg. Well, you need challenge, and without challenge, you're not going to grow. If we do the same things, we'll get the same results. If we always do the easy thing— then we won't get better and get stronger. And so number one, in order to grow, we must challenge ourselves. Number two, we must cleanse ourselves. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 3. He's talking about being children of God. And he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. The Hebrew writer said it this way, we must lay aside the weight and the sin which so doth easily beset us. And so we must cleanse ourselves from excuses, cleanse ourselves from distractions, cleanse ourselves from poor thinking and poor influences. Number three, we must commit ourselves to our goals. Challenge takes commitment Cleansing takes commitment. We have to keep going. Chances are good we're going to fail. Chances are good we're going to fall down. We're going to stumble. We're going to have setbacks. That's understandable. What we must not do is give up. What we cannot do is quit or stop. We have to keep going. God desires us to grow, and so he's given us things to help us. He's given us ultimately His Word. When you read the Bible over and over again, amazing things happen. And just for the record, when preachers are exhorting, read the Bible, they don't really simply mean that. What they mean is read the Bible and then read the Bible again and then read the Bible again and read the Bible again, again, and read the Bible again, and read the Bible Now, when preachers say, read the Bible, that's really what they mean. One of my children tells me sometimes, Dad, use your words. And uh, what she means by that, I've come to understand, is use all of your words. Give the full explanation. Don't just speak in shorthand. Sometimes we as preachers do that. We might just say, read the Bible. What we really mean is read the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over again. And when you do that, amazing things happen. First of all, you'll learn the Bible. Not enough people know the Bible. A lot of people have Bibles, but they don't know what's inside. Number two, you'll learn the Godhead. You'll learn the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, their nature, their character, their work. You will learn God. Number three, you'll notice patterns of thoughts and words, repeated messages, because the apostles often repeat themselves. They say it again and again. And you'll be able to harmonize passages from different books. This author says this. Well, when this author touches the same subject, he's talking about the same thing. You'll be able to harmonize harmonize it. You'll get a broader, better, more accurate view of the context of Scripture. Ultimately, it will change you. It will change you from the inside out. It will change your mind. It will change your thoughts. It will change your words and your deeds. You will be able to apply then what you've learned because you will know it. Ultimately, you'll grow. Another thing that will happen is you will see things you've previously missed. It's what happened to me when trying to work on this sermon. I have read the book of Romans once or twice, and I I thought I would have known it, but I, I missed something. I've probably read it again and again, and this particular time, it really stood out to me. It furnishes us with our sermon this morning. If you have your Bibles and you join me in Romans chapter 11, we'll begin our study there. Our subject is about God. In fact, that is our title. It's all about God. Romans has been called Paul's masterpiece. It's also been called the greatest letter in the Bible. There are two parts to the book, the first 11 chapters and then 12 to 16 in the book. The first section has to do with the doctrinal parts that Paul talks about, typically of typical of his writings. And then the second portion is the practical way of doing what he has taught us in the first half of the book. When we get to chapter 11, he is actually in the conclusion of the first part of the book. If you read any commentary on the book of Romans, it will say it has to do with justification, how God makes a man just before him. And ultimately, that will be by faith, by grace through faith. That's how God does that. And that is certainly discussed, and if you will, the theme and major portion of the book. But in the book, there are so many other doctrines and Themes talked about. And it's those that are very important for us to understand. In fact, I'm going to ask you to remember the following. I'll give you a list here momentarily. And if I didn't suggest it already, let me suggest it. And please know, it's just a suggestion. But the suggestion would be to, to bring something to write with and to take some notes and to follow along. It's a lot of material. It's hard to remember. I don't remember it myself, and that's why I write it down. And so, I'd encourage you to do the same. I'll ask you to remember these things, though, because this is what we'll talk about. This is what's covered in the book, and I probably missed something. Back in chapter 1, the book opens with prophecy, and then there's the divine nature of Jesus, and then there's the resurrection, and then there's faith, and then there's the church, and then there's the gospel and sin and its solution. There's creation, there's man's knowledge, there's the divine nature, there's judgment, the true Jews, the Jewish advantage, there's justification, salvation by faith, grace, baptism, forgiveness, law, works, flesh, there's spirit and there's faith, there's hope, there's victory, there's providence, there's God's love, there's God's sovereignty, there's the Jew and the Gentile, and then there's the remnant where we are with restoration and redemption. Ultimately, there's God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? As you can imagine, a sister met me this morning after the service, and she said, I can't hear as fast as you talk. She said, I can't write that fast, and I can't hear that fast. And so, obviously, we're going to have to make some adjustments. Do you see how I put you in that? We are going to have to make some adjustments. No, actually, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. I'm going to figure out a way not to keep you for four hours and still give you this amount of material. We'll have to figure that out. She had a great suggestion. I'll try to follow up with that. You don't have to remember that list because I'll repeat it here in just a moment. It is the point of the book, though, and it's ultimately what we'll talk about here. And I only went up to chapter 11. I didn't walk through the rest of the book. There could have been a reference to service in chapter 12 and subjection to government and scruples in chapter 14, commendation of the faithful in 15, the defeat of Satan. He says that, 1620, and then the mystery where he ends again talking about faith, how he opened the book. Our focus this morning is on Paul's praise of God and why he does that. And that's here in Romans chapter 11, near the end of this chapter. There is Paul's praise, and what this section of Scripture has to deal with is Paul is now talking to the Gentiles. He says earlier that as a As the apostle to the Gentiles, in verse number 11, he says he's going to make them know some things relative to their place before God. And he's been talking about the Jew and the Gentile and their relationship and how the Jews were God's people and how at one point the Gentiles were given up by God, but God had mercy on them. And now the Jews, many of them don't believe, and God will have mercy on them. He says the Jews were disobedient, the Gentiles were disobedient, both were in sin. He establishes that early in the book, back in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Note, first of all, in verse number 30, he says, God showed mercy to the Gentiles. He says of the Gentiles, you were once disobedient to God, verse 30, for just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. The book really is about the Jew and the Gentile and how God justifies both by faith. But he says to the Gentiles, listen, you were once disobedient and God was merciful to you. And he says, now they are disobedient. That's verse number 30, the end of that verse, because of their disobedience. And so in the verse 31, he says, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. It becomes very clear that the Gentiles in their disobedience received mercy from God, and now the Jews in their disobedience will also receive mercy from God. In fact, verse 32, Paul says that God put them both under sin so that he could show mercy to both. It tells us something ultimately about God, namely this, that God is a God of truth that it doesn't matter who sins, Gentiles in chapter 1 in idolatry, or Jews in chapter 2 who ultimately did the same things. It doesn't matter. God is a God of truth. God is against sin. Doesn't matter who does it. The second thing it tells us about God is God is a God of equality. The Scripture is very clear. Anyone who wants to work righteousness will be accepted by God. Doesn't matter your past. Doesn't matter your station. Doesn't matter what has or what you've done or not done. It doesn't matter. If you make up your heart to do right, if you give your mind and your heart to God, if you're willing to come to him, God will have you. Whosoever will, let him come. Jew or Gentile, God is a God of equality. Number three, it says of God that he desires to save. It is something that God's people struggled with in the Old Testament and hopefully not nearly as much today. But God is in the saving business, not the condemning business. Now, will people be condemned? Yes, but it's not because God wants it. God is very clear. He would have all men to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. He is not willing that any should perish 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, God is a God of salvation. He desires to save. Now, it's those things in those verses that cause Paul to praise God. That's verse 33 down to verse 35. And what he praises God about is God's mind in all of this, all of this great work, all of these things, from creation to that very point in which he wrote— Paul says God's mind is worthy of praise. Three things he says about the mind of God. First of all, he praises the scale of God's mind. Verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways or His judgments, and unfathomable are His ways. With regards to God's mind, you you hear the word depth, and it it reminds you of 1 Corinthians 2, where the Bible speaks of the Spirit searching the deep things of God. Whenever you think of depth, the ocean might come to mind, and plumbing, the depth, depths of the ocean, getting down to the very deep and recesses. That's what's being described, but God's mind is being discussed. The depth of God's mind, the wisdom of God's mind, the knowledge of God's mind, simply the scale of it. Paul praises God for that. Secondly, God's mind and its infinite nature, verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor. The infinite nature of God's mind. It's secure, first of all. The question is, who's known it? The answer is, no one. God's mind is a closed vault to humanity. There is simply nothing we could do to know the mind of God. It's secure. It's hidden to us. We are ignorant of the mind of God. We can't know it. How can we know it? The only way is revelation. You can't feel God. You can't experience God. You can't sense God. You can't go out into nature and have some experience and by that come away knowing it's not how it works. If God doesn't reveal himself to us, if he doesn't share his mind with us, then we would be at a loss. Who has been his counselor? Who's known the mind of God? Nobody has known the mind of God. Now, sometimes when you say nobody like that, it might be the case that you think modern times. It might be the case that you think nobody today. That's not really what I mean. When the Bible asks the question, who has known the mind of God? The answer to that is from Adam to this hour. And if you projected out another 10,000 years, there will never be a human being born Who could know the mind of God without revelation? No one. It is impossible to know God. Why do you need to read your Bible? If you had no other reason, that would be it. You simply can't know God's mind without reading what he has given you. Paul would say in Ephesians 3:4, wherefore, or whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mysteries of God. Paul praises God's mind for the infinite nature of it. It's secure, it's complete, and God doesn't have new information. What He has revealed is what He wants us to know. Number three, He praises God's mind for His grace. Verse 35, he says, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? The question ultimately is, whose debt is God in? Who who does God owe? And the answer is nobody. Nobody has ever given to God first. Nobody has God in their debt. On the other side of that coin, though, is God is gracious to everybody. Everyone who has received, received from God. God is the ultimate giver. We learned that from the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. He gave us the world. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. God is the ultimate giver. Paul praises God's mind for the grace that God provides. Now, all of that, if you will allow, is introduction. I'll give you a few moments to catch your breath. Several years ago, I had throat surgery and removed some uh, polyps from my vocal cords. And uh, I was told, don't preach without water. I have not been perfect in that, but I'm trying to get better. And the reason I don't do that well is I have to stop talking. (laughs) And that's problematic for me. Paul's praise of God. It's all about God. So here is the sermon. Three things. Three points to remember, and I beg you, please remember these points. Remember these three things. Number one, from him. Number two, through him. And number three, to him. That's what Paul says in verse 36. The conclusion of this section of the book the conclusion of this praise that he just offers to God has that as the point. Point number one, verse 36. For from him. All of that praise and all of these things and this conclusion. For from him. What's the point? God is the source of all. God is the source of everything. From him Now, when I say that, to ask you to appreciate it, try this. Remember back in verse 30, the intro to this praise was about the Jew and the Gentile. Remember, ultimately, the opening of this chapter was about the Jews and the remnant of the Jews that would be saved. God has not given up on the Jews. God has not cast away His people. He still wants them to be saved. There will be a remnant, okay? That's the introduction. But then remember the praise, God's mind, those three things, the the scale of God's mind that brought everything, the the, the grace of God's mind, the gifts that He provides— from Him, what allows this? It's the nature of God. From Him, it's because of who He is. Paul discussed this back in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where he talked about the divine nature and creation and how God had made Himself known to them so that they are, were without excuse— We could also talk about Psalm 90, verse 1 and verse number 2, that before the heavens were brought forth and the earth was made and the mountains were formed from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. We could also talk about Revelation 1-8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty we could talk about God's gifts in creation. John chapter 1 and verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's tempting sometimes when you're reading the Bible in one section and you know there are other passages that go along with that that you might leave where you're reading to go find those others. But don't do that. Resist that temptation and And just do this. Stay in the book. For from him. Well, what's from him? You remember that list? That list I read to you very hurriedly. Let's read it a little slower. With the thought of from him. There was prophecy. Chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. There's the divine nature of Jesus. There's the resurrection. There's faith. Obedience of faith, 1-5. There's the church, those who were called of God, 6 and 7. There's the gospel, 8 7 down to verse 17. There is sin, that is what the Gentiles did, and the creation that God, the knowledge that God provided, the divine nature so that they could have known. There is judgment, chapter 2, and the Jews were not going to escape because they had done the same things. There are those who are true Jews, those who are not Physical Jews, but those who have their hearts circumcised. There's the advantage of the Jews. What advantage then had the Jews? Chiefly in every way, but unto you were committed the oracles of God. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And then there's justification. Chapter 3, there's salvation by faith. There's grace. There's baptism. There's law. There's works. There's flesh. You stop me at any point because any one of these things would be enough. But from Him is every one of single, every single one of these things and more that could be enumerated from Him. But then, secondly, Paul says, through Him. God is the source of everything, everything comes from Him. But then, secondly, God is the means of everything. We exist, the scripture says. By, because of Him. Acts 17 comes to mind, for in Him we live and move and have our very being. Genesis 1, 26, 27 comes to mind. He made us in His image. We exist because of God. But then the Bible says not only do we exist, we subsist. We continue to live because of Him. Sometimes people are given a running start, and they forgot they were given the run. Listen, you don't wake up one day and say, wow, I'm glad God made the world, but I'll take it from here. No. He upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. He didn't just make it. He keeps it running. It exists and continues because of Him. He is both the creator and the sustainer. Again, go back through the list. Go back over all of those things. And I, 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 friends, I assure you this. I didn't list everything. I think my list got up to about 25 or 26, and I know there's more in there that could be mentioned. It's from Him, it's through Him, and then thirdly, it's to Him. God is not simply the source, God is not simply the means, God is ultimately the object. Man's misunderstanding of the first two points causes him to misunderstand this point. God is our intent. God is the reason. Again, the book of Romans has talked about this. You have your Bibles there. Look back in chapter 3 and notice what Paul says. I don't know that you have done it, and I don't even think God is ultimately opposed to it because people do it in Scripture and He answers and that is men have questioned God, wondered about God. I will say this, by the time your justice is in, impugned, and, and by the time your your sense of righteousness and, and goodness is, is infringed upon, and and by the time you're beginning to wonder where was God and why did God, by the time you reach that point, just know this, you're late. God is way better than we are. And God is far more just than we are. And God is infringed upon far earlier than we are. But man does question God. And so what the Bible does largely is explain and defend God. Why would God make a world where many people, if not most people, are going to be lost? Why would God do that? And so the Bible will justify God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He's already said the Gentiles were in sin, chapter 1, and so they gave up God and God gave them up. He says in chapter 2, the Jews did the same thing. You'll notice chapter 3 in verse number 9, he asked the question, what then are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? He says, no, in no wise or in no way, for we have already before proved they are both the Jew and the Gentile. They are all under sin. John, in a few verses, in verse 23, he repeats that thought. And please, take the all of verse 9 and make it the same all in verse 23. The all is a reference to Jew-Gentile, and he says, for all have sinned and fallen short or come short of the glory of God. But it's what's next that justifies God and shows the purpose of it. Verse 23 or 4, he says, "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, that was, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forebaths of God, He passed over the sins previously committed." For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier. God is both. And that's Paul's point. God is just. And God justifies. Paul says, all things are from him and through him and to Him. And within this very book, the Jews questioned it. Chapter 3, we just read in verse number 1, the Jews would ask, well, what advantage did we have? What's the point of being Jews? God was being forbearing. God was doing that. In chapter 9, he says the same thing. In fact, in that chapter, he talks about the sovereignty of God and God's ability and willingness to make decisions and choices, not about who he'll save, but about who he'll use and on whom he'll have mercy. And he asked the question, what if God, what if God were willing, what if God was willing to forbear, to allow and to deal with those who were wicked so that he could bring the Christ and show mercy? Would that be okay with you? It's kind of what Paul is asking. What if he did? Sometimes you and I should do well to ask that. Am I okay with God's choices? The answer should be yes. Am I okay with God doing and governing the world the way He does it? The answer should be yes, but sometimes people misunderstand. And they, they they reason about God based on their life circumstances. And so things are going well in my life. God is good. Things cease to go well in my life. I wonder if God is not as good as I once thought He was. I'm feeling healthy and well. God is good. Man, my health is ailing and I'm sick. Well, I wonder what God is. Friends, God's goodness is not determined by our life circumstances. God is good, period. And that's Paul's point. From him, through him, and to him. There are two other things in the verse. Let's note them and the sermon will be yours. And I'll tell you in advance, I'm fearful for y'all at this hour. I'm fearful, y'all, at this hour, partly because, and I'm not trying to run you to 8 o'clock. I'm just saying I'm fearful because there's no, there's no backstop here. That's, that's scary for me to know. Sorry about that. But I thought we should start on a really good note. So, two more things that Paul says in this verse. Notice the next phrase. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. I'm going to ask you to remember that. I'll ask you again to remember the book, but I will spare you the list one more time. Prophecy, the divine nature, the resurrection, the faith, the church, the judgment, the salvation, all the way through, all things. Not some, not most, not many. From him, through him, to him, are all things. Notice how the verse ends, and it's the final point. To him be glory forever. Amen. Sometimes you hear people talk about purpose. Sometimes you hear people asking, What's your purpose in life? And you need to find your purpose. And sometimes people set themselves out on a journey to figure it out. I'm going to find myself, I'm going to figure out why I'm here. You know, the Bible does this amazing things. It just tells you. Acts chapter 17, about verse 27, Paul said, that they should seek the Lord. Now, he had just said why he made the world. God that made the world and all things that are therein. And then he says, that they should seek the Lord. Well, what's the purpose? That. What's the purpose once you find him? Because that's what Paul's audience had done. They had sought him and they would found him. Now what? To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let God be your why. Let God be your motivation. Why do we exist to glorify God? Why do we subsist to glorify God? Why do we worship to glorify God? Why do we live holy lives? Why do we emulate Jesus? Why do we love one another? To glorify God. Why do we love our enemies? Why do we share the good news? Why do we love our wives, husbands, and why do we reverence our husbands, wives? To glorify God. Why do we bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Why do we, as children, obey our parents in the Lord? To glorify God. Why do we preach the Word? Why do we practice self-control? Why do we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen, 2 Peter 3.18. Why do we shine our lights in the world? Why do we accept each other in matters of judgments without judging, accepting that one man esteems one day alike and another esteems every day? Why do we do that? To glorify God. Why do we prefer one another Paul discusses all of these things and more in this very book it is to glorify God we're a long way from January 1st and I mentioned two things growth and glorifying God can you remember back to January 1 did you make any resolutions did you set any goals did you plan to grow spiritually are you challenging yourself? Are you cleansing yourself? Are you committing yourself? What is your motivation? Let God be your why. I'm going to ask you to remember Romans 11 and verse 36. Not just the rest of this year, but I want to urge you to remember Romans 11:36 the rest of your life. There are three things that Paul says in that verse. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then he gives us our why. To him be glory, both now and forever, amen. If you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have not submitted, To God's plan of salvation. And friends, that should be your why. Well, why are you here, Paul said, to seek the Lord? And if you have come this morning, we are very thankful and grateful for that because you've made the right step, the first step, to come learn about God, learn about His goodness, and praise Him for all that He has done for us. What He has done is given His Son for the sins of the world, for your sins and for mine, And God invites you to become His child by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24. By repenting of your sins, changing your heart, changing your mind and the direction that you're living your life. By confessing the name of Jesus, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And finally, as Paul discussed in this very book, Romans 6, 3 through 5, by dying to the practice of sin, being buried with Him in baptism and rising and walking in newness of life friends, if you've never done that, there's your why. There's your purpose. There is no greater decision you can make than to come to God. But what if you have? Friends, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to read your heart or question your mind or your motive. I'm trying to be and want to be as transparent as I possibly can. I want to grow, too. I want to improve, too. I want to get better and closer to my God, and I hope that's what you want to do. The Bible does not teach us to examine each other. It teaches us to examine ourselves. And so let me ask you to do that. Let me ask you to look back on this year. How's it been? How's your challenge? How's your cleansing? How's your commitment? Friends, if you need to make changes in your life, let me be the first to urge and encourage and walk with you As we do that, God is certainly worthy of our praise. And as Paul points out here, it's all about God. From him, through him, to him, to God be glory. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.